Good morning. It's good to see some faces that are at least new to me in person this morning. And good morning again to those who are joining us from home. Let's begin in prayer. Heavenly Father, this morning we desire to meet with you, to hear from you, to be fed by you, and to be sent back out into a world that is in need of you. Lord, by the end of these next five Sundays, we'll have read and heard all of Philippians aloud to us. Lord, would you let these words become your words to us? May we hear your voice speaking to us, calling us deeper and deeper into life with you. This morning, Lord, quiet the distractions that might keep us from hearing you, both internally and externally. And may the Spirit grant us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're beginning this series called Emptied Out during Lent, where we'll be uh, journeying through the book of Philippians together. So let's talk a little bit about Philippi. If you like history, this may be interesting. In fact, if you like history enough, you probably know all of this already. But this may be interesting. If you don't like history, try not to zone out during the beginning of this sermon. The ancient city of Philippi was, it was located at the far eastern end of a large fertile plain in central Macedonia. Uh, if you're wondering where that is today, it's the northeastern part of Greece near the city of Kavala. Now, what happened with Philippi was named something else prior to this, but it was taken over and renamed after Philip of Macedon in around 356 BCE. Philip, you may not have heard of, but he was the father of Alexander the Great, who you've probably heard of at some point in time. And all of Macedonia, including Philippi, later came under control of the Romans in 168 BCE, so a couple hundred years later. Fast forward another 120 years. We're now in 42 BCE, and there's these two major battles that happen right outside of Philippi. And they're between, on one side, Cassius and Brutus, who you've probably heard of, maybe um, with Julius Caesar, right? They're the two that assassinate Julius Caesar. And on the other side is Octavian and Mark Antony. In the first battle, Cassius is losing to Mark Antony. And uh, when he gets this uh, false news that Brutus is also losing his battle, in fact, that Brutus has lost his battle, even though he hasn't, Cassius commits suicide and loses to Mark Antony. Well, then they decide, let's retreat pause the battle. About three weeks later, they re-engage. Now it's just Brutus versus Octavian and Mark Antony's troops. Brutus losing, 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 losing until there's basically no troops left. And then he commits suicide as well. Well, Octavian is uh, victorious, and eventually he becomes someone you may have heard of named Caesar Augustus. 
Following these victories, Octavian, he honored Philippi by refounding it as a Roman military colony. So the populace there has Roman citizenship, which is important for when we read this book. And always astute politically, Octavian, he, he populated the town and the surrounding rural areas actually with discharged veterans from war. So most of the population of Philippi and the region are all these ex-military Romans, right? And he did this for two reasons. One is it alleviates some of the population problems in Rome, getting too, uh, too full of people, right? And then also it ensures that this town, Philippi, will remain loyal to the empire. You have to imagine a, silly, a city full of proud Roman patriots who have fought for their way of life. That's the majority of the population. Now, by the time Paul comes to the city, it's about 80 years later. So perhaps some of these original members of town would still be around, perhaps just their kids. But Philippi at this point had become the urban political center of the eastern end of the plain. And this history matters, whether it was exciting or boring to you. It matters because these are the stories that these people would be telling to one another to find meaning. Do you remember when we lied to Cassius and he committed suicide and our people won? Do you remember then when we'd be Brutus? And we won. Do you remember these victories? These are the stories people would be telling to find meaning. It's how they understood who they are. And the story of Paul's visit to Philippi is equally, if not more, fascinating. And that's told to us in the book of Acts, particularly in chapter 16. And I wish we had time for me to read the whole thing because... It's amazing, um, but I'll just kind of do a play-by-play here, okay? So what's happening is at chapter 16, Paul is wanting to visit somewhere else. The spirit, it says, won't let him go there. Then he has this dream about this guy from Macedonia who says, basically, help us. That He says, come to Macedonia and help us in a dream. So verse 12 says, from there... We traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. And Paul's custom was to attend synagogue in these towns that he'd be on his missionary journey of and and preach the gospel. Well, apparently in uh, Macedonia, particularly in the Philippi region, there, there were no synagogues because he ends up going to the side of a river. And he meets these women praying by the river, particularly this woman, this woman named Lydia, who is a wealthy entrepreneurial woman. And Lydia, it says her heart is open. She responds to the good news of God. And then she invites Paul and his companions to stay in her house. She's baptized. So Paul's early on in Philippi experiencing new people coming to faith who are getting baptized, who are then immediately showing hospitality. And then next, Paul meets almost the opposite. If Lydia is this wealthy entrepreneur 
beautiful woman. Then he meets a young slave girl. This slave girl is possessed by a spirit, and she's able to tell the future. And her owners, they capitalize on this. They have her fortune tell to people so that they can become rich based on this girl's possession. This girl starts following around Paul and his companions, and she's shouting this. She says, these men are servants of the Most High God who are to tell you the way to be saved. She does this for multiple days yelling this, and Paul gets annoyed and casts the spirit out of her. He's just sick of her yelling. So the spirit goes away, and of course her owners are pissed off because that was their source of money. So they get this big riot going, and now in Philippi, Paul and his companions are beaten, they're stripped naked, and eventually sent into jail. Well, then while they're in jail, they sing. They sing and pray in the middle of the night. There's this big earthquake. Everyone in the prison's chains are broken, and they could all run and escape. The jailer comes to them and is about to commit suicide, something that is not unheard of in that region. And Paul and Silas say, wait, 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 we're all still here. And he doesn't understand it. Why in the world would you have stayed in prison when your chains had been broken? So this is hugely influential. This jailer comes to know the Lord, gets baptized, invites Paul and all his companions into his household. They have a meal. This jailer washes the wounds of Paul and Silas, sends them on our way. Eventually, uh, Paul and Silas, particularly because Paul's a Roman citizen, are escorted out of town by the officials who look kind of silly now because we shouldn't have beat this guy. He's a citizen. They go back to Lydia's house, have one final celebration, and go on their way. That was a long story. It would have been even longer if I read it directly from Scripture, so you're welcome. But also, this is important. Imagine this being your... If I, what if I came here, and the first week I was here, all of that happened? I'm already going to cherish you guys, One Ancient Hope. But if that happened in the first week, my prayers would sound like Paul's. I give thanks for you. I love you so much. I mean, amazing, amazing experiences. So that's what's going on. The Philippian church's birth is one of intense opposition, right? There's cultural opposition. There's this legal opposition. He's in prison. There's demonic opposition, and yet all of it is overcome by God in powerful, life-changing ways. I mean, Paul gets to see salvation happen right before his eyes. He gets to receive warm hospitality from people. And it creates this church of socioeconomic diversity. You have a wealthy entrepreneurial woman. You have a slave girl. You have people who are within the Roman institution, jailers who are now in this church, all coming together into a common baptism, a common table, a common witness. There's no wonder that Paul begins this letter with such deep expression of joy and gratitude over the Philippian church, even though he is once again writing in chains in the prison.
And in this first chapter of Philippians, Paul talks about himself quite a bit. He's, he's talking about his experience in prison. And it's because he wants the Philippian church to sort of see themselves in Paul as Paul sees himself in Christ. He wants them to realize that their current persecution, which they're having again because of these Roman ex-soldiers, can have two effects on them. It can either cause division and strife, which it's starting to do. We'll learn later in the letter. Uh, This outside pressure can sort of cause this internal splintering. That's one option. Or the suffering can be transformational. It can actually unify the community stronger than it ever might have been, forming them into more faithful followers of Jesus who can actually experience deep joy. Paul shows them how his suffering is doing that to him, and it can do that to them. And one of the ways that can happen is with something called holy indifference. And so Paul shares his story. Give me a moment to take a drink here. (laughs) So the section of this chapter that I want to zoom in on begins in the latter half of verse 18. After Paul's talking about these people who share the gospel for not the greatest reasons, he says, yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me that I'm in prison will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly and expect I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body whether by life or by death for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain if I am to go on living in the body which will mean fruitful labor, labor for me Yet what shall I choose? I I do not know. I'm torn between the two. Or in the English Standard Version with Michael read, I'm hard pressed between the two. I don't know what to do. What decision will I make? This is a question of discernment that Paul has to make. And... uh, Be clear here, Paul's not talking about should I commit suicide, right? Would it be better for me to die? Should I, like so many have in this Roman colony, commit suicide and just die and go be with Jesus or not? He's wondering how he should behave during his trial in prison because he has a couple options. He can proclaim the gospel in this clear and cutting, almost aggressive way in his trial which he does at other times in Acts. Or he could just claim his citizenship, be quiet a little bit, and he'll probably be released. If he complains, uh, tells it in this compelling, cutting way, it's most likely going to lead to execution, to death. But he knows it would be an opportunity to proclaim the gospel. He would die as a martyr. 
and he would be united with Christ, which we learn is always Paul's ultimate goal. It's his deepest longing, union with Christ. But if he dies, then he can't care for this beloved Philippian church, which would also include the gospel expanding, and he would still suffer, which he says is a union with Christ as well. So how will he make this decision? I mean, imagine as, as much as you can, maybe you can imagine this more, maybe less, but imagine being in prison, right? Awaiting a trial with two outcomes, freedom or execution. I don't know about you, but my mind would be spinning. How should I act here? How am I going to do this? What am I going to... What am I going to say? My heart would probably be filled with anxiety and dread, not joy and gratitude. But he goes on saying, this is continuing verse 23. I desire to depart and be with Christ. He's like, if I'm honest, I would rather just be with Christ and end this thing, which is better by far. But he says, it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Paul is able in these few verses to sort of get to this place of interior freedom about the decision. He decides, okay, if it's up to me, I know that the right decision actually is me staying with you based out of love for others. This is what he says. I'm convinced of this. I want to survive my trial. I want to be released from prison. Uh, That's my decision. Yet, he has a sense of peace that he can hold both open-handed. He knows both will ultimately lead to Christ. I mean, what a model for discernment. Now, two weekends ago, I mentioned how I was able to go on a a retreat. I was able to spend about 48 hours um, alone in some extended silence and solitude. And a big reason for that was that I, I knew I'm going to need to discern what God might be inviting Sarah and I into in this next season of our life. Just to be clear, I am so happy that one ancient hope has found her next pastor and that God has called Will Bankston to lead you in the way of Jesus. I'm delighted in that. Yet, it also does mean that my time here is coming to an end, uh, most likely in the beginning of May. And that leaves many uncertainties and decisions to be made. Um, Full disclosure, I have applications in at a handful of churches around the country. And to be honest, different churches are more appealing for different reasons. Some got a better salary. Some are churches that I'm like, oh, there's clearly more alignment there, whether it's denominationally or culturally. Some are in warmer climates. Uh, Some are closer to family. None of them have all of those things, of course. And so there are decisions to be made. And um, there's just a lot to consider. And I feel like Paul saying, yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. 
Two is what he says. It might be five I'm torn between. And at one point or another, maybe many times, as followers of Jesus, we will have to make a choice between two or more good options. And this is where the practice of discernment comes in. Now, discernment isn't between a good option and a bad or a sinful option. Discernment isn't, should I stay married or leave my wife? It's not, should I tell the truth or lie when I'm filing my taxes? It's not, should I be generous or endlessly develop my stock options? It's not, should I turn the other cheek or punch the guy in the stomach who just offended me? Those are not questions you need to discern with God. One is sin, the other is not. See, Paul is making a decision between two good options. And that doesn't make discernment easier. It makes it harder. In fact, it makes it impossible without the Holy Spirit. But look at what Paul says earlier. This is verses 9 and 10, and I'm, I'm reading from the NRV. He says, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Paul's saying his, all this prayer, all of this happening in this first chapter is so that the Philippian church may be able to discern the best way forward that actually leads to unity and purity and a blameless life before the day of Christ. That's his prayer for the Philippian church. And so he shares his own practice. He says, this is how it's looked for me in prison as I've began to develop this holy indifference so that you, Philippian church, might develop this as well. And I wonder, you, One Ancient Hope Church, are there decisions in your life like this? Not a decision between what is right and what is wrong, but a decision about what is best. Is there a need for discernment in your life? Upon close examination, there is, there always is for all of us, a decision to be made. One of the things I was able to do on my retreat is go on this really long walk. It was really cold, so I bundled up. I probably looked like a wild person. Scarves all around every part of my head. Uh, long johns under a couple layers of pants, multiple, whatever, all of it. Walked for, got to walk for three hours. And I had these sort of three categories of what I was praying First, I was asking for God's light about these job options. Um, I just said, Lord, I, I know that my vision is flawed. So shine your light that I may see as you see. I want to see these things clearly as you do. That was kind of the first category. Second, I asked God to reveal to me his will. God, what is it that you want me to choose? Help me know that my greatest joy in life will actually be found in following you. So would you show me your will? And finally, I sort of did this imaginative exercise where I was picturing the different places that I was thinking of. And um, again, some were more appealing than others. 
And I just ask God, Lord, as I picture these, help me to hold them loosely because maybe the one I don't think is the best will in time become the best. And I don't want to say no too soon. Grant me an interior freedom to desire what you want. I asked for holy indifference. And this is different from fatalism, of course. Fatalism says, who cares what I want? All things are predetermined by fate or destiny anyways. And when we actually get to that place, it's not a place of peace. It's a place of resentment or apathy, right? If, if you have a fatalist view of the future, it's not a peaceful one. It may masquerade as one, but you probably have much resentment about the way things are turning out in your life. Or you're like, who cares? And then you're not fully present in it. And that's not much good for anyone anyways. Holy indifference, on the other hand, comes with the gift of faith. There needs to be this gift of faith that God is actually good and he knows what is better. So I can say, Lord, I want that. I want that more than what I might think I want. Here's a little example. Okay, here's an example. It won't be hard to imagine. It's the dead of winter, okay? And you're leaving your office early because, well, there's a weather forecast calling for snow and freezing temperatures. You put on your brand new winter coat, brand new. You got it that week, and man, you really love it, right? You head outside towards your car. You're getting ready to put your key in the door when you see a homeless man walk by in a tattered blanket wrapped around their shoulders. All right, it's decision time. You really love your new coat, and that's okay. But an attitude of holy indifference doesn't love the coat more than the person who's right in front of you. You can hold the coat loose enough to realize the proper use of this coat might be to give it away. You know that you can get in your warm, warm car, drive to your warm house, and take out last year's winter coat, which is still in fine shape, although it's not the color you really would prefer, and you can use that. Now, there's nothing wrong with having a new coat. I need a new coat. I've been contemplating which one to get. I'm waiting to see if we end up living somewhere next winter where there is a winter or if it's more southern. So I don't want to buy one yet. But anyways, nothing wrong. And there's nothing wrong with enjoying your new coat. But when an opportunity presents itself to fulfill Jesus's command to love our neighbor, we can't love the coat more than that. Right? That's a shallow love that's getting in the way of a deeper love. Because loving the coat ultimately will not give you deep joy. Eventually, the coat won't be new. Eventually, you'll wish it was in a different color. Eventually, the salt will get white stains all over it. But loving the person in that case will provide this truly deep joy. Loving your neighbor will provide that. Jesus knows that. That's why he invites you into that, not as punishment, but as freedom. It's actually a more fulfilling life. That's having this gift of holy indifference. You're able to say, this thing is nice, 
but it is nothing, absolutely nothing compared to my Lord. And one of the things that you'll notice about the Apostle Paul is that he talks a ton about the cross all throughout his different uh, epistles and letters. He's always talking about the cross. But one of the things you'll also notice if you take a closer look is that he doesn't just talk about the cross. His very life takes on the shape of it. He talks about himself no longer living. It's actually Christ who lives in him. He has died and been resurrected as Christ. Paul's very life takes on the shape of the gospel. There's this theological word cruciformity the shape of the cross. There's a cruciformity to Paul's life. And this is why he can say in our text today, Philippians 1.27, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let your life look like the gospel. He's saying, because I am doing that. It's why he says in 1 Corinthians 11.1, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And in our text again, this time in chapter 3, 17, he says, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us, meaning Paul and his companions as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. The very shape of Paul's life can become an example of the way of Jesus, of what it looks like to die and be born again. Paul wants his life to model Christ's. Listen to this from 2 Corinthians 12, 7 to 9. Therefore, in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Now, whatever the thorn is in Paul's flesh, it's clearly something he doesn't want. But he comes to accept that whatever that thorn is, it actually allows Christ's power to rest on him in a way that could not happen without it. And so rather than spending his whole life in prayer about getting this thing removed, he comes to this place of holy indifference, not fatalism, not apathy, not resentment, trusting that God is doing something good through this thing in his life. And again, Paul's whole life is about modeling Christ's life. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus similarly pleads with God three times to remove this cup of suffering that he's about to go to in the cross. But finally, his prayer, in the most profound way, and I'll say this again and again, yet not what I will, but what you will, God. Paul is modeling what holy indifference looks like to the Philippian church. And he says in verse 25, 
The reason he's doing this is for your progress and joy in the faith. You see, holding things loosely leads to deep joy. Because when our hands are less in control, we can more clearly see and feel the hand of God on our lives. And that is always good. And this is how suffering can be formational, transformational, instead of destructive. And maybe at this point you're thinking, okay, I want this. I want this holy indifference in my life. I want to hold things and decisions more loosely. I want to develop an inner freedom of will so that I might actually desire, I might actually want what God wants instead of fighting what he wants all the time. Maybe you're thinking, I want to let go of my tiny vision in order to see God's greater good in store for me. How do I do this? How do I get this holy indifference? Well, the good but perhaps frustrating news about this is that it's a grace of God. It's a gift of God. We cannot earn it, achieve it, manipulate it from him. We cannot develop it in our own strength or by trying harder. Now, ultimately, that's good news, although it means there's no three easy steps to achieve it. However, you can ask for it, and you can make space to develop this holy indifference in your life. So I do want to give two practical action steps if this is something you want to desire. The first is simply pray. Ask God to help you loosen your hold on whatever it is you need to let go of. Here's a, a tangible way you can pray like this. Okay. You would do this. You would physically stand up in your room, living room, most likely by yourself, but you could do it with a friend or a spouse, but physically stand up and, and walk a few steps in one direction. Okay. Then you imagine that you're standing before Jesus and you're going to offer some things to him. You're going to give some things over. So start with those things that are most dear to you. Say, Jesus, I hand before you my, my kids, my spouse, my friends, my family, the things I hold most dear, my, my car maybe, my house, whatever it is, and just leave them with Jesus, right? Lift those things up to him. And then next, you'd lovingly place your future even before him. Lord, this promotion that I've been longing for or this job change that I'm looking for, Lord, after graduation, these hopes that I have, or Lord, my five-year plan, these dreams, I, I place them before you. And then going even a step farther, you take your enemies before him. You take those grudges that you're holding on to. You take your angers, your desire for retaliation. You give it all into his hands, right? You're physically doing that. Then you turn and walk away. And there's nothing magic in it. And it won't change everything that day, most likely. But it's a way to pray. 
You might also want to couple it with a, with a breath prayer that you just pray throughout the day. Maybe uttering Jesus' words, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. And again, none of this is magic. It likely won't be a one-and-done prayer, but it's a practice that can accompany you on this journey towards indifference and deep joy. And another way is to practice fasting. This is the first Sunday in Lent. And if Lent is something new to you or something that when you hear it, it has this bitter taste in your mouth, I want to encourage you, it's, it's actually a journey to joy. It's a journey to resurrection. Technically, again, it began this last Wednesday on Ash Wednesday. It goes until Easter morning. It's 46 days, but six of those days are Sundays. So if you do decide to fast, remember that Sundays are always resurrection days. They're always feast days. And on those days, be thankful that God, Jesus is alive and you don't have to earn your way to him and enjoy whatever that thing is that you are fasting from. So real quick, because fasting is, is a tricky thing, I want to just say a few things, and then, then I'll end out this sermon. But I really do want to encourage you into the practice of fasting. I think it's meant for our good, not for our bad. All right, fasting is not about feeling bad. It's not about demonstrating how seri- serious we are about Jesus or our faith. It's not some sort of hunger hunger strike. Like, God, I'm so serious about this prayer, I'm not even going to eat until you answer it. That's not what fasting is. It's not a way to manipulate God and get what you want. Okay? It's not something we do because we deserve it. Right? You sinner, you don't even deserve food. That's not what fasting is either. It's not about trying to atone for your sins or make up for something you did. If you view fasting as any of those things, it's punishment that no one actually is trying to punish you for. It's not meant to be penance, to sort of earn something. Jesus has atoned for your sins fully and completely and made you right with God. We can't and don't need to go hungry to pay for our sins. Christian fasting is not a way to suffer for God or demonstrate our holiness. It's not righteousness, right? It doesn't equal something good that you've done for God. It's not like an addition. If you're a regular faster, that doesn't mean you're somehow closer to God. In fact, the people who practice the spiritual disciplines a lot are often the ones who are in such deep need of God's grace that they're practicing these disciplines, right? It's also not the same thing as repenting from sin. You're not going to say, you know what? I'm going to fast from gossip this Lent. Gossip is just sin. You're meant to just return and turn from it, right? Like go away from it. Um, Instead, here's what Christian fasting is. It's intentionally withholding something good, something we'd normally partake in for the purpose of creating space in our lives to feast on the presence of Jesus. Fasting invites us to refuse our tendency to reflexively fill ourselves in all the normal ways and instead to allow the fullness of God to seep in, right? 
which is actually satisfying beyond anything we could have done for ourselves. It does this by drawing our attention to what we normally reach for when we have a need. Right? When you're fasting from food, you realize just how quickly you might go to food to meet some other need. Right? So like when I have a legitimate need, like I'm hungry, I want food. Well, I reach for a snack or I cook dinner and I have that need met almost immediately. Then I feel better. Then my body is like, thanks for the food. Now I don't feel hunger. But in fasting, every time I feel that hunger, that need, I can't get it to go away right away. So rather than responding in some way that I can control, I become aware that I am needy. And so in the best cases, I can turn to the Lord in that and learn to be sustained by God directly. A traditional option for fasting in Lent, you've probably heard or done this or seen people do this, desserts and alcohol. And this is because these are normally things that are actually okay to enjoy in moderation. But for a lot of us, they become ways to take the edge off of life's anxiety. They kind of numb us just a little bit, just enough that's socially acceptable. And this is true particularly in the evening. After a long day filled with uncertainties and difficulties, these are a sure way to relax and numb out rather than sit with whatever that uh, emptiness is and actually go to God. Now, these are ways to, they're not evil, okay? They're not even bad, but they become substitutes for reaching out to God. So here's a few questions you might ask yourself if you're like, okay, I might try this fasting thing. Here's some questions, particularly to grow in holy indifference. What have you become dependent on? I mean, what would be really hard for you to be indifferent to? It doesn't have to be food. You don't have to fast from food. But be, be creative. Think of some things. Is it caffeine? Could you go all day without caffeine? Is it media or entertainment? Do you need to delete some apps from your phone? this Lent? Do you need to decide you won't look at your phone for certain chunks of the day this Lent? Maybe you need to check your emails just once a day at 4 p.m. this Lent. How can you say no to a behavior or a habit that can open up space to rely on God? Is shopping a way for you to relieve anxiety? What if you didn't look in the mirror for 40 days? What if you didn't wear makeup for 40 days? Maybe you need to fast from news sites, right? Or from watching the news this Lent. Or sports sites. Or checking the scores on games this Lent. What would you like to become wholly indifferent to? What might be truly liberating to leave behind? If anything comes to mind at all right now, don't let it go. Write it down. Bring it to the Lord in prayer. He may be speaking to you right now. Remember, the true gift of fasting is freedom. When we begin saying no to lesser things, we have the freedom to find joy in the ultimate thing, the love of God. And a holy indifference is only possible 
if we are grounded in the love of God. Inner freedom is only possible when you live in the reality of God's unending, unconditional love for you. God loves you as an unrepeatable, unique act of creation. You, each one of you. And from that basic knowledge of being loved, you can learn that you have worth apart from any of the things or people in the world that are present or absent from your life. God loves you as you are. With all your talents, with all your quirks, and with all your failings. You are enough for God in Christ. And God is enough for you. Like Paul, God says to you, my grace is sufficient for you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Fasting is actually feasting on God's presence. And this morning, after abstaining for nearly a year, not by choice, we are invited to the communion table to feast on God's presence together. So for those who are watching at home um, or who will not be partaking today, this is what I want to say. If you feel any longing, wishing, you know, I wish I could be there, but it just doesn't feel safe for me. I wish I could have this fellowship with people and with the elements, with the body and blood of Jesus. And you feel this longing, lean into it. Let this time be a time where you say, God, I desire you. Spend some time in prayer over that. For those who are here, we're going to partake. He was always the guest in the homes of Peter and Jairus, Martha and Mary. He was always the guest at the meal tables of the wealthy, where he pled the cause of the poor he was always the guest. Upsetting polite company, befriending isolated people, welcoming the stranger, he was always the guest. But here, at this table, he is the host. Those who wish to serve him must first be served by him. Those who want to follow him must be fed by him. Those who would wash his feet must first let him make us clean. For this is the table where God intends us to be nourished. This is the time when Christ can make us new. So come, you who hunger and thirst for a deeper faith, for a better life, for a fairer world. Jesus Christ, who has sat at our tables, now invites us to be guests at his. Hear the words of the institution of the Holy Supper of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
There's a place in the bulletin for you to respond. Therefore, we proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. The bread we break is a sharing in the body of Christ. We who are many are one body, for we all share the same loaf. The cup of which we give thanks is a sharing in the blood of Christ. The cup that we drink is our participation in the blood of Christ. So the way that we will uh, practically do this is we'll come forward. These are individually packaged. They have uh, the wafer on top. It's two different openings. And um, I'll release each row to come forward at a time from each side just so we can remain distanced. And if for any reason you would prefer not to come forward for safety reasons, I will walk the, the plate to the back for you. Um, just sort of give me a signal after people have received, and I'll know to do that. So we'll begin on this side, and you will kind of do a loop-de-loop. -loop. So we're going to enter down the middle aisle, which is actually a way to like the, a wedding kind of redo our vows to the Lord. And this is for anyone who confesses Christ as Lord, this table is for you. If you have not uh, come to know Jesus yet, you might want to take a moment to just spend this time in prayer. Um, and if you're hungry for Jesus, confess that to him, express that to him in prayer. So again, we'll do these kind of loop-de-loops Brandon, you will begin first if you are receiving. <laughs> if you're not, I'm sorry to call you out, but get first one. <laughs> you can come forward and take one. And then we're all going to actually um, open them and partake in the elements at the same time once you've received them and you're back at your seat. That way, even though they're individual cups, which is not the best, but it is the safest, we can still have that moment of unity of all taking them at the same time. 